hey, you might as well stand since we're going to read the <laughs> we're going to read the word. Uh, <laughs> might as well keep standing. I don't want to sit you down for one minute. We are uh, we're about to read a story out of First Samuel chapter two that reminds us. Going it, to it'll. It'll call our minds to all this, a lot of the recent scandals in the church that we've, that we've all witnessed and lived through, the sexual scandals and different things that have rocked the church. Uh, and this passage is going to show us that this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun for millennia. For millennia, Satan has been trying to destroy the church and God's people from within. Uh, and here's that story from 3,000 years ago that talks about that. It also talks about what God does, so... Thank you for standing as out of respect for God's word. Uh, this is 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's a bit of a long reading, so if you feel like you need to sit down at any point, please feel free to. Let's now listen intently as we read God's word. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest servant would come with, while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much of it as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. And thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And so they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel about how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is, not, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But when someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear the ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me 
by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. And therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who will honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in distress you will look with the envious eye of all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. And the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon you, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And anyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. It's disturbing, Lord, to see to see such corruption in the worship of Israel, to see such corruption in and through the church, Lord. And it makes us dismayed. It makes us our hearts grieve for the people hurt in its fallout and aftermath. And Lord, you're teaching us things through this. These are true stories of what people really did. Lord, but you are always faithful. So Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to not ever put our faith in the church or any man, but always to keep our faith in you and in Jesus, Lord, and to trust you in patience and to wait with you as you play the long game. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us even through this passage, Lord, that you would show us the beauty of Jesus especially, and that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promised to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Not too long ago, I went to a funeral. My sister and I went to a funeral of um, friends of my parents, and there was another woman there who was a good friend of my mom's, as I remember growing up, and she had, uh, we talked to her for a minute, and she, in the midst of it, she came out saying that she'd end up leaving the church. She had, was part, was, uh, it was at a Catholic church, and she said she had left the church over the, the recent sex abuse scandals of the priests, and that that had just disgusted her, and uh, because of that, she had completely lost faith in God and left the church altogether, essentially, is what she said. Um, and it's hard when we read a passage like this of just deep systemic corruption in the worship complex of Israel. It's, not, it's hard to not think about you know, modern cases of systemic corruption in the church. And it's not hard to think about the recent... Uh, sex scandal in the Roman Catholic Church where wicked men 
wicked men like Father John Gagan and about 850 others like him, as far as we can tell, snuck into the Roman church to use it for their own evil ends and their own gain. And men like Cardinal Bernard Law, the Archbishop of Boston, who up to that point had, you know, seemed to be a fairly good guy, but for reasons unbeknownst to us, for his own reputation or the reputation of the church or for his own power or pride or who knows what, shuffled these guys around and, and, and just didn't do anything about it. Um, but honestly, there's probably better examples of all this closer to home. We have our own sex scandals that seem to break out every couple of years in the pastorate or money scandals or, uh, you know, currently this fascination with excusing and engaging in poor character the church overall, the American church overall, in an effort to cling to the last vestiges of political and social power that we might have rather than trusting God to purge his church and start something anew, which is something he does and has always done throughout the millennia. You know, the sad part of this story, the sad part of all these stories that I've talked about is that they're, they're, they're cyclical. They happen over and over again. The scandal in the Roman church is just the latest. Uh, the scandal on other scandals I've mentioned are just the latest. But this was Shiloh, the, the, the cultic center of Israel. This was 3,000 years ago. And in between then, it's happened over and over again. There was this at Shiloh, and then there was King Saul. And then after him was King David, who failed everyone, the brief hiatus. And then there was Solomon, who failed everyone. And then there was the dismal failure of the kings of Israel sliding down into exile. And then Israel returned, and there was the Pharisees, who co-opted religion, the whole of Israelite religion, into this exercise of morality that Jesus taught against. And then in the early church, there was the Montanists, who engaged in all sorts of sexual immorality, and the Gnostics who did the same and said there was no reason to honor God with our bodies since we were pure spirit, and all these things, nonsense, ideas coming into the church, the awful, bloated, medieval church, the religious wars of the Protestant Reformation that followed them, liberalism, the emergent church, progressive evangelicalism, word of faith. New Apostolic Reformation, Branch Davidians, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and on and on and on it goes. You could quickly be driven to despair when you think about how much corruption there is in and around the church. There's a verse in Matthew, four words. It says that in the end times... And I'm not saying this is the end times, but it says there, signs and wonders will be of the evil signs and wonders will be so great as to deceive the very elect, if that were possible. Those four words keep me sane. Because it tells us God is holding on to us, even in the midst of all this chaos and corruption. The common denominator of all those things is that someone or a group of someones wanted, essentially, something else from what the church offers. Wanted something more. 
and made something more important than the gospel message of salvation through Jesus. And in the pursuit of that uh, was chaos and fallout and hardship and, and people getting hurt in the wake of it. And it's happened before, and it's happening now, and it'll happen again until the Lord Jesus returns. And so there's a big warning. The big warning in this passage is if we place our faith ultimately in the church, there's a good chance that it will fail us. We can't put our faith in the church or in men. They don't have the capacity, the strength to be the foundation of our faith. We'll very likely lose our faith like my, my mom's friend did. But the promise in here is that if we place our faith in God, he will not fail us. Specifically, if we place our faith in what he offers us, in our faith in new life in Jesus, in the gospel that he's given us, and promises that God will never fail us. And so the big idea that we get out of this passage is just that, that the church may fail us, but God never will because Jesus is our faithful high priest forever. The church may fail us, but God never will because Jesus is our faithful high priest forever. Let's look at the first part. The church may fail us. In this first part, it's real easy to get disconnected in this first part of 1 Samuel and forget where we are. This is the end of the era of Judges. And for you Bible scholars, you know, or by people familiar with your Bibles, you know that the period of the Judges was a period where Israel as a whole just slid into awful and terrible immorality and, dis- and despair and destruction. And this is the end of all that period. This, the tabernacle has been here at Shiloh. It's a, for so long, it's a, almost a permanent figure. The author calls it the temple at Shiloh because it's been there so long. And the, the worship there has descended and decayed over such a long period of time. It talks about Eli sitting on a throne, literally what it says, like a king in front of this permanent, sad tabernacle. And here we see a picture of the era of the judges coming to an end. It is twilight at Shiloh. It's the last chapter of this dying epoch before God brings something new out of it. And so here what's happening on the surface of it, you see what's happening. Hophni and Phinehas are Eli's sons, and they are, they, they, it says, they do not know the Lord. These are unsaved men. These are wicked men. They've come into the church. They're using the church for their own gain, for their own ends. They're into the religious formality of it. They're actually getting impatient with the formality of it because the formality of the religion is holding them back from getting the things that they want. Uh, but what they're doing essentially is taking, they're using their position to take the best cuts of meat reserved for God only. This is bad. If you read the text carefully, it says the worship, the the regular corrupt worship of Shiloh was that the priests would come after they had already got their portion and take a fork and stick it in everybody's pots of their portion and take some more. That was regular style corruption at Shiloh. And then the text says, but what Hophni and Phinehas were doing was coming before even the fat portion was burned, which was solely for the Lord, and saying, give us the meat now so that we can roast it. They had gone above and beyond the regular corruption of Shiloh. And then on top of that, 
Of course, they're using their power and their position as priests to sexually abuse all the women that are part of the complex there that are serving. And Eli, Eli might be the saddest guy in this whole story. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're the evil men who have snuck into the church. They're like, they're like Father John Gagan who's snuck into the church. But Eli, he's the guy who does nothing about it for whatever reason. He's depicted, when, when he's chastised by the man of God, he repents. It just, he's pictured as this, this, this older guy who's just gotten so calloused and his faith has become so weak and he's been so tainted by his own sin He's depicted as his eyes are dim, his ears can't hear, and he's literally, he's pictured as this guy who's just encased in the brutality of sin like a sarcophagus. He is the high priest of Israel. He rebukes his sons, but he doesn't remove them. He doesn't take them out. He doesn't do anything to stop them and the one clue as to why that is, the man of God says, you have fattened yourselves, seeing, meaning that Eli was participating. When they got the good cuts of meat, they were bringing it into dad, and everybody was participating together. They had just, they traded the beauty of the, the, the pictures of the gospel that they were supposed to be portraying to Israel and traded it in for the trinkets of greed and materialism and having the best steak. And that was their family. That was Shiloh. That was worship. It's Shiloh. And so what's really happening, bottom line, the man of God who comes later just calls it out. He says in verse 29, at the, at the bottom of everything, what they've done is they have scorned the sacrifices and the offerings. And instead they have fattened themselves on the choicest parts. In other words, they have disdained or diminished or they don't care about the core, the centrality of what the Israelite religion was supposed to be all about and instead they corrupted it to make it all about what they wanted. The sacrifices were still happening. Everyone was still going through the motions but just the, the gravitational pull of the corruption in the church and the high priests had made it to, to the point where Everybody knew that that was just kind of secondary to what was really important, which was coming up materially. And look, this is way, way easier to do than you might think. I mean, we tend we look at this, we say, okay, the gross corruption, we automatically, we think, you know, Father John Gagan, we think Bernard Law. Uh, but this is way easier to happen way more often, it's not the gross uh, corruption. It's more subtle. It's more pervasive way of shifting focus from what the power of the Christian faith is to something else, something that we want it to be that's more exciting or that we enjoy more. Think about it. What were they? They disdained, the man of God said, they disdained the sacrifices. What were the sacrifices? Sacrifices were the picture of Jesus. The animal died to pay for the sins of the Israelites. It was the core of the Israelite religion. God's, the symbol of God's mercy. The symbol of God's mercy and God's love that he would judge someone else for their sins and that we would be clean. 
And they traded that in for something else. And usually it's more subtle, right? Maybe it's gross immorality, but maybe it's become something more like, instead of it primarily being about Jesus and his sacrifice for us, the church slowly starts drifting into, it becomes all about being good moral people who really want to conserve morality more than we want to conserve the gospel. Does that ever happen? Maybe it becomes real slow over time into more of an experience or an experiment in life hacking or self-help where worship becomes just learning how to win at life and not about the gospel. Maybe it becomes slowly and over time more about getting personal supernatural power and not so much about the gospel. Maybe it becomes slowly over time more about being theologically precise and not so much about proclaiming the gospel. Is it easy to do that? That's the thing. It's distraction. That's how the devil works. Subtle. He doesn't usually just bust in with a bunch of gross immorality. He usually just slowly shifts our focus. Eyes off Jesus. Eyes off of something else. And in, the, in that doing, he takes all the power out of worship, all the power out of the Christian faith. And the bummer is, in the wake of that, people get hurt. It burns people in the process. And so that's why it's dangerous. If your faith is in the church, it's dangerous. It's likely to fail you. But the second thing is, second point is that God never, ever will. Look, there are real, we see it in the story. There's real people that are being crushed by this priesthood at Shiloh. You see the guy, the lay guy, the guy who's got the, the he's got his meat, he's boiling, he's already, he's used to the regular corruption, but the, the servant of the priest comes up and says, give me the raw meat right now or I'm going to take it by force. He tries to, he tries to uh, you know, argue with him. He goes, you can't do that. And the fat hasn't even been burned yet. That was the process. The fat was offered up to God and then the priests got their portion and then the people got their portion. And he was like, you're the priest. You don't even believe this stuff. How am I supposed? How am I? Just a regular guy coming to worship. I had a family member who was in a church under an atheist priest for years, and it was crushing them. The spiritual leadership was devoid of spirit, and the person who I loved very much was suffering so badly under it. And of course, then. Uh, There's the women who served in the tabernacle. These aren't prostitutes. These are regular Israelite girls who had gone probably to serve at the tabernacle because they loved God and the people in power used their positions to, over, to, to, 
manipulate them and use their power to sexually abuse them. Those girls are damaged. Those, are, those girls are hurt. They, can you imagine what that did to their faith? And so maybe that's your story. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe you've been hurt by people in the church. Maybe you've been hurt by people who call themselves Christians. I don't know. I don't know everybody in here. I know it's a good chance that that's true. And so you're asking yourself, where's uh, God in all of this? How would God, why would God let that even happen? Well, there's a third player. There's a third player in this whole story. It's the man of God who just shows up out of nowhere. He doesn't even have a name. He's a prophet, man of God, early, uh, early Old Testament way of saying prophet. He's a prophet like Elijah, a prophet like uh, Isaiah. He's a spokesman for God. Notice he doesn't ride in with an army and crush Shiloh. What he rides in, he rides in with the power of God's word. And he, this is almost, this guy's a picture of the faithful church. He rides in and he says three things. He says, number one, he said, I want you to remember all of God's faithfulness and grace to you in the past. God has promised to be faithful and good to you and he has been, overwhelmingly so. Second thing, here are the exact natures of your wrongs. Spelled it out for them what they were doing. They had scorned the sacrifices and the offerings of God to take the choice portions for themselves. And the third thing is, he says, and here's where God's blessing, or here's what God's judgment is going to be for these things. And he spells it out. And we don't even hear anything else about this guy. We hear Eli, the priest, accepts it, which is a sign of life. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, if they had heard it, uh, their ears would be deaf to it. They wouldn't have listened to him whatsoever. But he, he leaves, and here's the thing. Here's the thing I want you to see, that, that all of these things happen. This prophet comes in and says all these things. They actually occur. He says, the sign for you, the thing that lets you know that all these things will happen is your two sons will die on the same day. We're going to see that in two chapters. 30 years later, 30 years later is the sign that says God is going to make everything right. And then after that, it takes 133 years for all of these things that the prophet has just said to actually take place. It doesn't happen until Solomon is king. When the last priest in Eli's line, Abiathar the priest, is sent home packing, and he's the guy who isn't slain by the sword to cry his eyes out and to live in poverty. So here's the thing. 133 years for God's justice to fully come through in this passage. That's a, there's a principle that it's teaching us here, and that is that God is in charge of the timing. And I don't... God is in charge of the timing. I do not like that. And I know a bunch of you don't like that either because we've talked about it. But that's just the reality. 
The reality is, God is the chess master or the pieces. And by putting our unequivocal yes out on the table gives God the right to move us as he wills through his providence. Uh, and sometimes that means you've got to wait. You've got to wait on God's perfect timing to come through to make things right. And that can be hard, man. I get it. I want, I, this is a constant struggle for me. I want God to come through with my plan on my time There are things I want so badly. I want God to provide them right now. It's like the girl in Willy Wonka. What's her name? Is it Violet Beauregard? See, I'm not going to do that again. I, I I want to control the timing. But I can't. And listen, here's why that's good. First, just on a basic level, God, in us having to wait on God's timing, forces us to be patient. There's a word, there's a Greek word, makrothumia, is the word for patience. And what it means is the ability to stay calm and respond in love to opposition and attack. And God wants us to have that as part of our character because Think about it. The opposite is flying off the handle and becoming upset by everything that happens in life that you don't like. That's a miserable way to live. But God builds macrothumia in us, patience, long-suffering, to give us the power to wait as he perfectly executes his plan. The second thing why it's good to wait is because God is the chess master. We are the chess pieces, and he is playing the game. Look at Hannah's story Hannah's story starts to come to this crazy, beautiful light when you think about it in this way. She's thinking all along, I'm just, I am afflicted, I am sad. She's waiting for, this, for something to come through, for God to bless her in these certain ways. She's desperate that she has to have. And God says, slow down, have patience, fulfill yourself in me, and wait. And she does, and at the end of it, what happens? God blesses her in all these ways, but she finds out in retrospect that she was not just this sad, afflicted woman, but that she was actually being used by God as one part in this multiplicity of providence where God brought all these things together, these disparate parts, and in one move just went plap and brought new life to Israel through the birth of Samuel, a rejuvenated priesthood, a godly priest who loved God, who served God and brought spiritual life and blessing and peace and ushered in the king them to Israel and all these wonderful things happened and Hannah steps back from that and goes, whoa, I'm a chess piece and that's good. I got to be a part of God's astonishing movement in salvation history And the same is true for us. God wants us to wait, not to just keep us on ice forever, but because he is, he does care about ours. He does care about all of our material needs. And we talk a lot about the supernatural realms of heaven and earth and where we're going, but the reality is he also blesses us in the here and now. We don't want to throw that out. We want to remember that. God does bless us. We have to be patient for it. 
it oftentimes will not look like what you think. We're going to talk about that a lot next week. But at the end of the day, when you reassess the situation, you will stand back and say, this is way better than what I hoped for. And so, all that to say that God will not fail us now, but that's not the whole story. That's not even the center core of the Christian faith. God is blessing us here and now. But the core of the Christian faith is that God will not fail us ever. And that's because Jesus is our high priest and king. That's the last part. Jesus is our faithful high priest forever. Like the, 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 drift, the drift in Christianity a lot of times can be that subtle drift where we start assuming the gospel then we let it kind of drift into the background and then we start making Christianity about the current blessing of God, Hannah's prayer to be fulfilled in the here and now. And that, that's, that's part of it. We don't want to throw that out, but it's not the central core of Christianity and it's not the thing that we can be empowered by. Because if we make Christianity all about what God does for us now and here in this life, we are left with a bit of a problem still. You know what that is? Eli brings it out providentially in verse 25. Well, in the middle of rebuking his sons, he says this. He says, if someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? He's saying, look, if, you, if, I sin against my, if I sin against my friend, there can be, you know, God can come and, and mediate for us, or God can, uh, it might be he's talking about the judges of Israel in that verse anyways. There's someone who can mediate, but if I sin against God, who is it that can mediate my sin between me and God? I'm reading through Job right now. Job, in the middle of this book, while he's lamenting all of his, all of his woes, he, he he, he, in verse chapter 9, he busts out with this. He says, oh would, there, oh, would there be that there were an arbiter between me and God? Were there someone who would come between me and God and grab the both of us and bring us together? And I think that's what Paul was thinking about when he wrote this. In Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, he said, for there is one God... And there was one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What he's saying is, look, even... The bad high priests were bad, but even the good high priests weren't enough. The good high priests still weren't enough to bridge the gap of our sin between us and God. But this is what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. He says, since we then, I read this for the passage of the gospel this earlier, since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that, all of that is what Christianity is really all about. That. And whenever we push this into the background in favor of other things, it robs the power of the gospel. It robs the church of the power that we're supposed to have in transforming lives and giving people hope and letting them know they can transcend the evil that is surrounding them, their own temptation of sin, the awfulness that we sometimes live in, a promise that is bigger and better than this world. Whenever we forget that and make the gospel about something earthly or something now, and there's a million ways to do that, we despise the sacrifice. Look, I have a, we'll close with this. I have a friend going through a hard time right now. He's waiting on the Lord, and it's tough, really tough. Uh, and he had a hard time this week, and at the, we talked on the phone, and at the end of it, you know, I was trying to comfort him. I was just trying to tell him it's going to be okay. And at the end of it, he, he, said, he asked me a question. He said, and this, this is not a new believer. This is a guy who knows the faith. He said, Jesus really resurrected from the dead. That was a question. And I said, yes. And his point was, it was a good question to ask. What he's saying was that in all my angst and all of my despair and all the things that I want so badly that I think I might not get and all the ways the devil is tempting me with it, do I know that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Because if he was, that makes everything else secondary. If Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that means that I have life and power. If Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that means that I am precious to God, that he loves me, and that his promises are for me. If Jesus is resurrected from the dead, it means I can weather any storm that might be on earth, and I can, I can wait however long God wants me to wait, and I know that I'm going to be okay, because that is the center of my reality. Not how moral a person I can be. That's not enough. Not how I can life hack my way into a winning at life because that'll fade. Anything other than the centrality of Jesus and the cross and the power inherent in it as the center of our worship, the center of our services, the center of our religious life, anything other than that pales in comparison. It's a band-aid. And so that is why We always look to Jesus. We always turn back to Christ and remember the cross, remember that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, that the Holy Spirit uses that to work power in us and rejoicing, even in a world full of corruption. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for all of your blessings. We thank you that even in the midst of corruption, you were caring for and looking out for your faithful ones. Lord, we pray that you would continue to do that for us and that we would cease 
to look for comfort in anything other than you and anything other than the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen.